This morning in North Carolina, wheels are spinning. Determination is winning. A passion is now a thriving business, and it shows no signs of slowing down. How? The power of a conversation, like the one Clint Spiegel had with First Horizon Bank about starting a bike wheel manufacturing facility in Asheville. Now it's not just talk, it's rubber meets road. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Clint. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Golf Pride, Two Under, Zexio, Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, Making the Game More Fun, Bionic Gloves, and the McLemore Club. Experience life above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Well, folks, just when I thought the NCAA couldn't get any worse, they proved me wrong. For those of you who haven't seen the story, last week at the Women's Regional Golf Tournament in Baton Rouge, the NCAA made the ridiculous decision to cancel the event and allow the top six-seeded teams to automatically advance to the national championship. The reason they canceled it? The amount of rain they got earlier in the week. They said the course was playable, but not at a championship level. Now, leading up to the tournament, look, they got seven inches of rain. I get it. The standing water on the course, though, had either soaked in or evaporated. When they made the announcement to the players, there was an immediate and loud uproar from the players to let them play. Now, it was sunny outside when the announcement was made. It's not like it was raining or thunderstorms were in the area. Many of the players immediately took to Twitter to show pages. Check out Christina Friedlova at F-R-Y-D-L-I-N-S on Twitter to see what I'm talking about. For the seniors who were prepared and waiting perhaps their whole college careers for the opportunity to play their way into competing for a national championship, their college careers ended at that moment. What makes this more of a head-scratcher? Do y'all remember the video a couple of years ago of the Weather Channel guy bracing himself as if the winds of a hurricane were making it hard to even stand up? And then in the background, you see two guys walking around like it's nothing. Same thing here, because as they make this ridiculous announcement, the LSU men's team can be seen in the background practicing. I'll talk more about this in the first segment with Tom Patry tonight, but this is the worst decision possible. You mean to tell me they couldn't have waited a day or two if they wanted conditions to be a little drier, or they couldn't have found a different venue to play out somewhere in the area that may have received less rain or had a sub-air system? I mean, at a minimum, they could have just played lift clean in place like they did at the Byron Nelson tournament last week on the PGA Tour. The only possible outcome was canceling the event on these kids, then to pick the top six seeded teams to advance, like, you know, using the polls like they do in D1 football to determine what four teams are going to go into, get into the playoffs. Every level below Division One manages to have a 16-team playoff, but somehow D1 can't figure out how to do that and they still need the polls to decide the top four. The NCAA is a horrible organization. It's time for another organization or group to take over managing college sports. Boy, I'm a little fired up tonight, folks, because I hate it for these kids. 
NCAA should stand for National Clueless Association of America. Come on, man. <sighs> okay, deep breath. Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and what a show I have in store for you tonight. As I mentioned a moment ago, leading off is going to be our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. I'm certainly going to get TP's thoughts on this NCAA fiasco. We'll also talk about this week's PGA Championship and tips from him about playing in windy conditions like the one those guys are sure to face at Kiwa Island this week. TP will join me in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to get another visit from our good friend Joe Groman. He's another one of the top instructors in the game. Joe is out at Old Ranch Country Club in Seal Beach, California. So we'll get his thoughts on the PGA and playing in windy conditions as well. Joe has also known Tiger Woods since Tiger was 13. Joe was interviewed for the documentary that HBO did about Tiger that came out earlier this year prior to his latest car accident. You get to see Joe briefly in the show. We'll talk about that interview plus Tiger's last car accident and the great work that Joe does with our wounded veterans. Really looking forward to having him back on the show. He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. And then we'll round out tonight's show with a visit from 1992 PGA Tour Rookie of the Year turned on-course broadcaster, and that's Mark Carnival. Mark is on-site at Kiowa this week with PGA Tour Radio. We'll hear his thoughts and insights on the course and the conditions, plus who he thinks will be on the top of the leaderboard come Sunday afternoon. Looking forward to having Carney on the show. He'll join me about 50 minutes from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the T. And thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our friends over at the Macklemore. My buddies and I are headed up there for our annual golf trip in just a couple of weeks, and I absolutely cannot wait. The Macklemore is a beautiful community resort and golf course just 35 minutes outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee, up on Lookout Mountain. Folks, go online to themacklemore.com to check out what a wonderful golf course and other amenities they have available for you up there. The new clubhouse and bar opened up last fall. Folks, you got to see this place to believe it. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. Our friend and PGA Tour caddy Kip Henley said, outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. And Golf Digest agreed, oh, by the way, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000. See why they're all saying that by checking out the course and the resort online at themacklemore.com. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Two Under. Two Under men's performance briefs are the official underwear of the 2021 U.S. Ryder Cup team, the captain and all vice captains. They are worn by more than 30 players on the PGA and Champions Tour. They are also worn by over 70 NCAA Division I colleges and 17 NFL teams. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort, fit, and performance from the golf course to the boardroom to the bedroom. Find these two underperformance men's briefs in over 4,000 golf pro shops nationwide, all Shields sports stores, PGA Tour Superstore, Golf Galaxy, and other fine retailers near you. Go online to twounder.com. That's the number two, U-N-D-R.com. Two underperformance in your pants. Use code on the T20 for a 20% discount at checkouts. Not valid on items already on sale or NCAA license briefs. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by our friends over at TaylorMade with their TP5 and TP5X golf balls. High draw? Check. Low fade? Check. Bump and run? Out of the sand or flop shot? Guess what? Check, check, and check. 
no matter what shot you need to pull off, there's one ball that's better than all of the rest, and that's the new TP5 and TP5X from TaylorMade. With their newly redesigned dimple pattern that decreases drag and increases lift, it's the number one ball in golf no matter the shot. So whether you need to hit it high over the trees, under, or even through them, hit TP5 or TP5X, the one ball designed to handle it all. Check them out online by going to TaylorMadeGolf.com for more information. All right, now back in making his 50th appearance with me tonight here on Next on the Tee is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. Tom is now getting settled into his new summer location up at Farmington Country Club in Charlottesville, Virginia. So if you're anywhere near Virginia, West Virginia, Washington, D.C., any of those areas, and you want to get lessons from one of the top instructors in the game who's going to help you win at whatever level you compete at, even if you're like me and all you're competing for is dinner from your buddies, right? At the end of the round, you're playing for the drinks, you're playing for a $20 NASA, or you're playing for them to pay for your dinner that night. Tom Patry's your guy. If you can't go see Tom in person, you can download the V1 video app and send Tom videos of your golf swing, and he can help get you dialed in through the app. Please check out his website, TomPatry.com, and subscribe to his newsletter while you're on there. You can also subscribe to his YouTube channel and watch over 150 free playing lessons on there. Be sure to give him a follow on social media on Twitter and Instagram, at TomPatryGolf, and it's always an honor to have TP as part of the show. Good evening for the 50th time, my friend. I can't believe I've let you be a part of the show that many times, but glad to have you back. How are you, my friend? Chrissy boy. <laughs> 50 times, TP, tonight. Can you believe it? Right? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Right. That's what I'm saying. I can't believe 50 shows with you. Jesus, out of mind. What, what do I do? You what put do up do? with me for 50 shows. Why do I do this wow. myself? Why do I do this? Long day in the lesson team. Long day in the lesson team. Then I got to talk with you for, for half an hour. Come on. Seriously. <laughs> it's because you're a Yankee fan and, and you really aspire to be a Red Sox fan. So you're trying to be more like me. So you keep coming on. And, and I applaud you for that, my friend. It, it was my dying breath. I wouldn't be a Red Sox fan. A dying breath, just you know. Okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, fifty times, and it's always an honor. Far- Farmington Country Club, my friend. Good for all of the folks up in the Virginia, West Virginia, Washington D.C. area, getting to have a superstar like you to now be out on the practice range with. Good for them. How's it going, dude? Dude, superstar. Please. Let's let's be careful. Superstar thing. I'm just. Uh, an old problem, but man, an old problem. It's um, it's really going good. It's um, it's a wonderful place. It's a, it's an incredibly historic place. I didn't, you know, I I knew the Jefferson influence. I didn't really understand how much of an influence he had at the facility, uh, the, the piece of property, I should say, back in the day. The history is incredible, and I'm a big history buff, Chris. It's been really fun. Uh, there is actually as a club historian, um, I got a tour from the general manager when I first got here. Some of the stories about the early days of, of property and what went on, incredible. Um, very, very cool stuff. Um, and the golf course itself, 1929 Fred Finley, i played twice now. Really, really good. Beautiful piece of property, beautiful layout. It flows beautifully, good bunkering, high shot value, great practice facility, huge, huge training center. Um, it's really, It's really cool, cool place. Well, like I say, those folks are incredibly lucky to have a guy like you to now 
instruct them and uh, and improve their golf game. So kudos to everybody up in the in the Charlottesville area. Go see Tom Patrick. Go see him at Farmington Country Club because your game is going to immediately improve. Tom has got so many great uh, stories about the players that he has spent some time with and are now winning, like I say, championships all up and down, whether it's, uh, you know, in, in an organized tournament or it's just, in, you know, as a club champion, those sorts of things. Tom, I know you've had a couple of more success stories from even from your folks that you helped out last summer down in Indiana. Share a couple of the success stories you've had with your students recently. First of all, Chris, the check's in the mail. I'll get the check out right away. Thanks, I appreciate it. I've got a young man in Indiana right now that uh, just, just won his conference championship, uh, Maverick Conaway. He's doing a great job. He's been with me a little bit over a year now. Um, young young high school player, really hits it a mile. Great great looking golf swing. Uh, he's he's going to be a pretty good one. Uh, he's working hard. Um, and then just by coincidence, the girl he dates is also a student of mine. She actually came to me first, uh, and she won. The, let me get this straight. She won the league, the conference, the county, and the state last year as a freshman. So quite wow. a duo. Um, yeah, so they're, they're both pretty good players. And Jack Lowack is playing better again in New York. Um, yeah, so we, we've got some people playing nicely, some young people playing nicely. It's been fun. Tom, I, I want to switch gears now, and um, if you heard me go. in the rant at the Here top of the show, um, this whole thing with the NCAA and the women's regional tournament last week in Baton Rouge has really got me fired up. I hate it for these kids. The things that uh, that got taken away from a lot of them is just it's ridiculous in my mind. They, they They had to come up with a better result than uh, than what they did. I don't know. Your, your thoughts on that story? Well, Chris, the only thing wrong with your rant is it wasn't strong enough. I mean, as strong as it was, you know, I, I, I was a college player, and if you had told me my senior year that I traveled to a site, I got to the site, I was prepared to play at the site, and and then you told me that, listen, uh, these six teams are going to advance. You're not going to even go home. Forget about it. And it's because of the weather. In the meantime, the sun's out. And I'm looking out on the practice range, and there are other players, uh, you know, of a, of a different gender practicing at the same time you're calling the event. And there's not an alternative plan of some kind other than just granting six people, six teams a pass. You would have had to pull me off somebody. I mean, that's the most ridiculous, stupid, upside-down, idiotic call in the history of college sports. It's, it's those those. Whoever made that decision, whether it was the committee in that region or the NCAA themselves, they should be ashamed of themselves to take the opportunity to compete away from people who have worked their asses off the entire season to get to that regional and then just pull it, pull the rug out from underneath them. Listen, Chris, you, so you push it back a day. Or you gather the coaches and say, listen, to, you know, there's, there's Alabama's close by, Auburn's close by, Georgia's close by. Mississippi State is close by. And if you go if you go west, Texas A&M is close by. You're going to tell me you can't travel within one day's time and push it back a date and find another site if not the site you're at currently? They, they didn't explore all the options. They made a quick decision. They made the wrong decision. And, and they, they robbed the chance to compete from people who have worked so hard for so long to play at that level at. To make a random decision like that is absolutely shameful. 
Yeah. As you heard, obviously, in my rant, I, I 100% agree with that. And for those poor seniors who were getting sort of their last opportunity to make a run at a national championship, whether it was individually or collectively as a team, to be standing there on those steps, to your point, to hear that ripped away from them. And, oh, by the way, for some of those teams that weren't in the top six, career's over now. That's it. You're done. Thank you. Right? And they get to go back and, and not have that chance. And I agree with you on the seniors, but and that's true. But even a junior, a sophomore, a freshman, you only have four chances to compete at that level. Four years, you have four chances. Okay, so you took one of you took twenty five percent, or fifty percent, or seventy five percent, depending on what year you were, of their chances away from them. Okay, guess what? That's 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 criminal. That's criminal. I mean. I'll give you an example. My my junior year, I finished second in the Division II National Championship. And I left that with a sting, losing by one shot. And and luckily, luckily, very luckily, I went back the next year and I won. What if I had finished second by a shot and the next year I got to the site and they said, oh, by the way, Tom, you're not playing this year. And that had never happened. They'd just taken away from that guy. That's ridiculous. It's crazy. Absolutely unconscionable to me. I'm not sure who I despise more, the NCAA or the USGA. It's it's it, it's a close it's a close race right now. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit because now we're in PGA Championship week, and one of the things I wanted to get your thoughts on, Tom. Speaking of the USGA and how they've butchered several of the U.S. Opens, they they've gotten it right the last couple of times, but we know the the struggles that they've had over the years. We never hear the same sort of struggle coming out of the PGA. We don't hear about the course being set up too difficult. We don't hear about losing greens. We don't hear about any of the ridiculousness that seems to be associated, again, not annually, but, but semi-annually with the USGA. Why can the PGA get it right, but the USGA frequently gets it wrong? Very simple, Chris. You can't have amateurs run professional events. Okay, amateurs behave like amateurs. I'm sorry. Okay, so the USGA, if they were smart, and they're not smart, by the way, not even close to being smart. Okay, they had their golf IQ is not very high. How's that? Quote me on that. Okay, so (laughs) what they should do is take the PGA Tours field staff and let them run the event either in front of the camera or behind the camera. And they can put on their blue blazers and beat their chest and walk around and call it their event. But let professionals run the event. And by the way, not just the U.S. Open, the U.S. Amateur, the U.S. Women's Open, the U.S. Senior Open, the Women's Senior Amateur, and I can keep on going, the USGA Junior, let professionals run the event. Okay? You're not qualified, USGA. You don't get it right. Ah. <laughs> uh. So let's talk about this this year's event, this this week's event, I should say, at the PGA Championship being played at the Ocean Course at Kiowa Island in South Carolina. Kiowa, I just learned this as I was doing all the research, Tom, is has more seaside holes than any course in the country. It's going to play almost 7,900 yards this week, which is the longest in major championship history. Being right there on the ocean, we would expect wind to be a factor. And you have a lot of experience playing in similar conditions from your time 
up on Long Island, your time down in Florida. What are you expecting to see this week at Kiowa? Well, let me back up a little bit, Chris. I, I played a pro-am at Kiowa um, the year it opened. Uh, and, and and arguably, maybe the golf course is a little bit softer in its difficulty than then. There have been some areas that have been cleared out, but not much, not, but not much easier. Trust me, not much. And I played, I was probably 30, I'm trying to remember, 32 or 33 years old. I was still playing really good golf at that point in my life. Um, and I remember playing from a modest length the first time I played it with this pro-am situation uh, with three members from Westchester Country Club. And the wind was blowing a little bit. And I played really good. I mean, really hit it good, really pitched and chipped and putted it good, managed it good. I mean, I played really, really good. I shot 76. I'm thinking to myself, and I, I just stopped playing full-time the year before. I thought to myself, holy smoke. I mean, I just played. I mean, I just felt like I shot 65 and shot 76. This place is hard. Um, the, the exhibition Rory put on in 2012 was nothing short of phenomenal. The golf course has clearly been lengthened since then. I hope and pray to God that that, that Terry, Terry Hegg has, has wherewithal not staying in its full length, although they've said publicly that they should, they do expect it to play at least 7,600 yards. Can you imagine 7,600 yards in the wind, Chris, on that golf course? And there are places oh. on that golf course where there, there are places on that golf course where there is nowhere to hide. I mean, nowhere to bail out, nowhere to hide. You have to, you have to, you have to golf your ball for 18 holes. I'll tell you what, if the wind blows out there at 7,600, there will be some carnage out there. There will be some real carnage. But, uh, you know, somebody, somebody's going to come through on Sunday obviously and survive. No wind, no wind, a couple under, you know, if it blows and it gets ugly. I can't even guess what the, what the number is going to be like. So in those conditions, let's, let's assume that they're going to get some wind out there. Is, does that favor the bombers, or does that eliminate the majority of the field and the guys that hit it the longest are going to be the ones at the top of the leaderboard? Or, or could wind be a neutralizer where no, no matter who you are, you're not going to be able to, to do well. And the guys that can, as you say, control their golf balls, Mr. Short Game, Short Game, Short Game, right? Those guys that can get it around the green, get it up and down, those are the guys that are going to have more of an opportunity to win. No, so if, it, if it plays that long and it's windy, Chris, uh, there's going to be a lot of greens that are going to be missed. And, and, the, and the up and downs on that golf course and the runoffs on that golf course and the tight lines on that golf course and then the bad areas that are close to greens on that golf course are going to require a lot of creativity. Um, so, I don't think it's necessarily a bomber. I think it's a guy that drives the ball relatively straight. And I don't mean, I don't think a short hitter can necessarily win there, but relatively straight. Guy keeps the ball or fights the ball very well. And a guy who has an awful lot of patience for four days and realizing that there are going to be some roller coaster rides during the four days and can really, can, you know, can really do some magical things around the green. Um, you know, when you have that many talented people that get together at one site, because somebody is going to get hot. Somebody's going to do some magical things with wedges and putters. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think it has to be a bomber, no. Um, remember, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, was it, at, was it at Aaron Hills that Brian Harmon finished second to Justin Thomas? Hmm. Is, that, am I, am I, is that right? Somebody, I don't know. I'd have to look that one up. I'm not sure right off the top. It was either Aaron Hills or help me with the other place out west that they played that 
No, you're not going to find the Q Island. That's not the place you're going to find it. Boy, you know what? I I want to be wrong. I want to see him do something miraculous, but I I I think the thing is really you know, the wheels are off the track. It's not it's not good, not good at all. Tom, I want to get a couple of playing lessons before I let you go tonight. And for our listeners that play a lot of coastal golf and they deal with headwinds and they deal with the winds coming left to right or right to left, what are some tips that you can give us to be more successful, particularly if we're on the tee and we're, or we're hitting an approach shot where we've got a stiff headwind, what do we need to do in order to overcome that? You know, Chris, it, it really love this topic because I grew up on the east end of Long Island. That's Bridge Chinnacock. And, you know, the east end of Long Island, it blows all the time. And, you know, we played high school golf back then, way back then, 100 years ago, you know, in the early spring. We started in, in, in early March. It could still be snowing at times. And, and the wind was howling. And, and, and it was never a place where the wind really calmed down. It blew all year round. And, and then I moved to Florida to play my college golf. And guess what? It blows in Florida, too, by the way. So I've played my whole life. Uh, in the winter and competed some overseas and, and, and you know, in, in Europe where it blows. And I'm one of the few people probably that when I, when I competed, I wanted it to blow because I, I knew how to play those shots. And back then it was instinctive. I just did things instinctively because I didn't have the, any, any money or funding for lessons. So I had to learn how to hit those shots. And my two, my two favorite coaches back then were Dr. Trial and Mr. Error. Um, but, you know, you know, I learned things like ball position. I learned things like choking down with a club. I learned things like abbreviating my follow through, like holding the follow through down and cutting it off, and you know, taking you know, taking another club or another two clubs, and reducing the speed of my swing so I could reduce the spin on the ball so it wouldn't rise so much into the wind or be affected so much in crosswind. So those are all things I learned instinctively, and then later on by teachers that I met later on in my life were confirmed that I actually had gotten it right you know, almost instinctively. So it was a lot of trial and error for me, but, you know, your ball position is a factor. The, the, the length you grip the club at is a factor. Holding off your foul through, not making, you know, Harvey Pennick used to say low finish, low ball, high finish, high ball. Um, things like that were very, very instinctive and natural for me. Um, but it, it's certainly something you want to be able to do uh, if, if you live in a coastal area or if you're traveling on vacation to coastal areas. Um, it's something that you don't just suddenly pick up, you know, and try on the third hole your next round. It's something you go to the range and you practice hitting those types of shots uh, to get used to them. Um, but, man, there's so much fun to hit. And the, create, the creativity of playing in the wind, you know, my time in the 90s that I got to spend with Seve was, was uh, eye-opening, too, because he took it to a whole other level as far as some of the things I just described. And, and it was great to be around him. He validated so many things I believed in and had instinctively done as a, as a young player. Um, but those shots are so much fun to hit. And playing in those conditions are fun. I don't, I don't shy away from playing in the wind. I, I think that, that kind of golf is just terrific. For those of us that have control of our golf ball and we're comfortable being able to fade it or hook it uh, on demand, if you're faced with a crosswind, left to right, right to left, whatever, are you a proponent of, riding the wind and let the wind carry the ball or, or do you prefer to kind of cut it or hook it into the wind so it gets held up a little straighter? What, what is a better way for those of us that have the ability to control it like that? Chris, you just showed me how high 
how much higher your golf IQ has gotten since I first met you. That's a great question, Chris. <laughs> I, I would also use wow. CP. I'm in, I am impressed, Miss Carol. That is really good. Um, I, I think that's a great question. I think that that's a preference question. I know a lot of really good players that I've played with and either against or coached currently who like to shape the ball up against the wind and hold it against the wind. Um, I, I, I don't have the ability to hit the ball both ways. I've always had a little bit of a cut, and, and that's my go-to shot. That's my comfort zone. I can draw it, but I really have to work hard. And under pressure, it's not a shot that I would necessarily go to under pressure. So I've always, I've always ridden them. Um, but I think there, are, you know, there are horses for courses in that. And to answer that question, I think that there are guys that, you know, can turn the ball both ways that are very talented. And by the way, guys that really can control the ball and make it go both ways, there aren't a lot of those guys out there. There, are most guys out there play, play a go-to shot especially when they're having trouble with their oxygen supply and they, and they got to get into the house without <laughs> doing something silly. So you'll see most guys going to their comfort shot and, and they'll, you know, they'll try to probably ride the wind if they can. Um, the guys that can go both ways in there, they're, they're, you can probably count them. I mean, guys that can truly go both ways on command, you can probably count them on one hand uh, on, in, in real, real turn pressure. Tom, before I let you go, remind our listeners about your YouTube channel and all the great videos you've uploaded uh, to that channel recently. Chris, on tonight's show being our 50th anniversary, I'm not going to remind them anything about me. What I'm going to use this time for is to tell people out there that what you've done for golf, what you've done for an incredible number of us as teachers, the players players you have on, they're known. They're successful. They've kind of made it. You've given so much opportunity to so many of us to teach the game, to expose ourselves, uh, and give us a platform to speak on uh, and speak to. Um, we owe you a debt of gratitude, every one of us. You know, so many of the teachers you've had on, you know, are good friends of mine uh, that we've connected through together, in some in some cases separately, but that, that, that are, you know, so many of them are people I really have a tremendous amount of respect for. And you've given all of us a platform to expose ourselves to, you know, literally a mass of listeners that, that follow you because of who you are. So this time is being used to say thank you to Christmas Carroll by not just Tom Patrick, but I'm sure that any one of those teachers that I'm talking about would echo my sentiments, and, and we really appreciate what you do for us. Oh, well, I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you very much for that. It means a great deal to me, as do you. You're the best, my friend. I can't thank you enough for 50 times. That's a lot of times coming on and being a part of this show, and you've made every one of them better. <laughs> oh, man. Take care, TP. All the best to uh, to you and the family, and uh, certainly now everyone up in Charlottesville at Farmington Country Club. They're lucky to have you. Thanks, Chris. I love you, buddy. Good night. See you, TP. That's a great Tom Patrick. TomPatry.com is the website. P-A-T-R-I at Tom Patry Golf on Instagram and Twitter is how to follow him. And Tom Patry's uh, YouTube channel, folks, 150 videos on there for free that you can look at and uh, and improve your game. Tom is an absolute gem. I love that guy, and uh, we certainly look forward to He'll be back in a couple of weeks, so look forward to that. All right, before I get to my next guest, Joe Groman, I want to give a shout-out to a few of our sponsors starting with our friends over at Finn Cycles. It's time to rethink golf. 
The game is at a tipping point. The young people we need in the game don't have four and a half hours to spend out on the course. Pairing fin cycles with a desire to play ready golf can cut playing time in half because all golfers go directly to their own golf ball. Plus, it's tons of fun. Go online to finscooters.com and click on Find a Fin for a course that has them near you. I also want to give a shout-out to our friends over at Golf Pride. Did you know that Golf Pride lets you rep your favorite team while also using the number one grip in golf? Your team, your grip, MCC Hybrid Grips, the number one grip series worldwide. Features an exclusive brush cotton cord in the upper hand for all-weather performance with premium rubber in the lower hand for added feel. The new MCC Team Series is available in a variety of new color combinations so you can rep your favorite team out on the course. Available in standard and midsize. Check it out online by going to golfpride.com. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now next on the tee with me is PGA professional Joe Groman. Joe played his college golf at Cypress College where he was the team MVP. He transferred to Cal State Fullerton and played there briefly before turning pro. He's been the head golf pro at great golf courses like Whittier Narrows, Chester, Washington, the Navy course at Seal Beach, where he met Earl Woods and a 13-year-old named Eldrick Woods. He also spent time at El Dorado Park Golf Course in Long Beach, California, and he's now at Old Ranch Country Club in Seal Beach, California. He was named the 2013 Southern California PGA Professional of the Year, and I'm excited to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Joe, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, thank you, Chris. Good to be back on your show. <laughs> I appreciate you, my friend. How have you been? It's been a minute, so catch us up. What's been going on with you? Well, I'm over here in beautiful Seal Beach, California at Old Ranch Country Club now. Just loving it. I'm actually here right now. It's still sunny and beautiful here. Uh, life is good, man. That's all I can say, you know. <laughs> People are kind of recognizing me from that gig, you know, I did that, uh, that, uh, that tiger thing, you know, which is kind of why I wanted to talk to you a little bit, kind of set the record straight. Yeah. You know, you know. Yeah. So let's let's get into that, Joe. I mean, I mean, look, I watched it earlier this year, came out, I think around the January timeframe and, and, uh, it was a two part, uh, you know, you know, documentary i guess on on tiger's life kind of the the early days and then in part two they sort of painted more of the dark side of tiger sort of more off the field than or off the course than on it but um yeah what was your impression and what was it like being a part of that documentary well you got i mean that was nine hours of interviews for that five minutes of stuff and uh i, I didn't know what angle they were going to so I mean I can't deny I was a little disappointed when I saw the final product. Nothing like coming clean to the world, you know what I'm saying? And uh, I felt <laughs> they did a little bit of a disservice to Earl, you know. And uh, you can't you can't raise a tiger and not be just a phenomenal dad. So I wanted to you know touch base on a little bit of that stuff. There was a few things in there. For example, the story uh, when I first played with Earl and, and Tiger together for the very first time and. And Earl was talking real loud, like I'm talking to you and jiggling his change and all that stuff. 
and uh, they cut it off right at that point, you know. So that was when I shushed her. I don't know if you remember that story. So Earl's doing it one more time, and like about the fifth hole, and I shushed him. And he looks at me, and he, Tiger's still putting. He goes, Joe, don't you know what I'm doing? I'm preparing Tiger to play through distraction when he gets to the tour, which I thought was a phenomenal answer coming from a father. I mean, he said it right in front of Tiger, so that's the kind of belief he had. And they kind of left that off. But they also left off the part where, you know, we were walking off that green, and I said to Tiger, I go, does he really do that every time you hit a shot? And Tiger said, I don't know. I haven't heard anything in two years. <laughs> so I thought that was beautiful. I wish they'd left. I wish they'd put that in there. So they just left the part in where he was jiggling his change and just, you know, being distracting, which didn't really tell the whole story of that, you know. And and there was other things like, you know, when I first met Tiger the day I met Tiger, you know, me and Earl went to the other side of the range. Well, first of all, let me tell you when I met Tiger, Earl was saying a few things and Tiger would just keep hitting, keep hitting, keep hitting, totally not acknowledging anything Earl said. I didn't know how they operated together. I didn't even know who this kid was, to be honest, because he was, he was so young. I had no idea that that could have been Earl's kid. And finally, I couldn't take it anymore. And I said, listen, young man, you want to listen to what he's saying. He knows what he's talking about. And Earl started laughing so hard. He was sitting on one of those things that holds your clubs. And he almost, he lost his balance, almost fell off of it laughing. He goes, don't you know who this is? And I said, no. This is my son, Tiger. I go, oh, my God. So anyway, we walked down to the other side of the range. And I asked him, I go, how come we came down here? You know, kids over there. And he, and he said, I don't want him thinking about what I'm thinking about. Plus, he knows where to find me if he needs me. And I just thought that was so awesome, you know. He really was a, a wonderful dad to Tiger. You know, when Earl would be on the range, Tiger would be on the course. When Earl Tiger would be on the range, Earl would be on the course. He, he let him do his own thing, you know. And another another time, Tiger's about 14 or 15. And you got to understand that if Tiger didn't have a tournament, he was at the course. So he was always at the course. I mean. The second he got out of school and did his homework and all that, he's at the course till dark. So, I mean, I kind of got a little concerned because there was no other kids at this golf course. We were 26 miles away from Long Beach Naval Station. So, you know, after I got to know them really well, I'm like, I'm like, uh, Earl, what would you do if Tiger wanted to quit golf? Because he was just, it was all 100% golf. No friends, no nothing. And, you know, I, I was like thinking, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, and I'm sure a lot of people when they were a kid, they were always at the course too. But I said, what would you do if Tiger wanted to quit golf? And he said, as long as Tiger is a productive member of society, I'm going to support him in anything he wants to do. I'm just here to provide the foundation for success. That's it. It's up to Tiger to take the steps necessary to be successful. But as long as he's a productive member of society, I'm going to support him. If he wants to be a postman, I'm going to support him. And I thought to myself, man, that's awesome, you know. So, they, yeah. you know, they, they left out a little bit of this, this side of Earl that uh, people don't know about. I mean, I think they kind of delved a little too deep into the, he's my best friend. Well, yeah, he's his best friend because that's who Tiger hung out with. You know, he hung out with guys way older than him. He hung out with Earl and his friends, and that was it, you know. He didn't, he didn't have all these little friends. I remember when uh, 
he won his second U.S. Junior, and Tita brought, you know, Tita was going to have a little party for Tiger, and that's a whole other story. But there was like, you know, four four kids showed up, and I had never met any of them ever. They were from his school, you know, and and you know, his second U.S. Junior is a big deal, and he scraped up four buddies from school, so he was. He wasn't the social butterfly, let's put it that way. So I could totally, when they're saying, you know, Earl's his best friend and Tiger's his best friend, you know, that's, they made it seem weird, but it wasn't, if you know what I'm saying. It was, it was, it was a cool relationship that they had, a good relationship. So what was your opinion after having watched the documentary? Again, like I say, it's two parts, the early part, the early years of Tiger, and then later on, um, it's, it's more, I think off the course stuff than it really was on the course stuff. But it, to me, it sort of felt like a hit job. Like they, yeah. DMZ, yeah. HBO, they were, they were really out to paint the dark side of Tiger. Did you get that feeling? I mean, did you, at least when you were a part of it, when they were interviewing you, did you feel like, all right, this could be a good thing. And then the outcome, the, the finished product, boy, that's not what I expected. That's exactly how I felt. I mean, once again, I mean, a producer flew out here to meet me and talk to me and see, and then he, they flew me to New York for four days. And uh, they were all super nice young people, very successful producers. There are a few Oscars on that team that put that together and Emmys and all that kind of thing. They were all great, wonderful people. And, you know, in nine hours, I, I could dish, you know, I could say a lot of stories in nine hours. And then when, when I, saw the final product, especially that opening scene when when Earl's sitting there, you know, saying that this is my gift to the world, and then they show Tiger in the jail thing. I was like, oh, I, I mean, I, my heart just sank. I'm like, no, you know, and and then, you know, some of the snippets that I was, that I was in, imagine that. I mean, I there was a lot of good, but yeah, to answer your question, frankly, I thought it was a hit job. No disrespect to those producers. They're wonderful people, but um, yeah, I, I definitely felt that uh, this kid has done the world of golf. Golf, he changed golf. He's, you know, he's he's an icon. He's done so much good for the game, and and yeah, it was definitely I felt a wee bit of a hit job, to say the least. And yeah, I was a little disappointed. Honestly, one of the things that that I walked away from, and and they showed um, his frequent trips out to Las Vegas and they talked about how in Vegas, like for all of us, right? Vegas is an escape from reality. And I started to feel like maybe Tiger was a guy that, you know, Tiger, Tiger Woods Inc. was sort of a runaway train that he wanted to get away from for a while. Maybe feel like, you know, he, maybe he didn't really want all this superstardom. He was a guy that wanted to be the best golfer ever and win a bunch of golf tournaments. But, but then, everything started to become about what people expected of him or what other people wanted him to do. They want, you know, Tiger, you got to get married. So Tiger gets married and, you know, it, everything sort of became larger than what he wanted it to be. You know, and then he became the face of Nike. He became the face of the game. I don't know. I mean, did you get a sense of that? And maybe from your experience of knowing Tiger, was it that or was it something else for you know all the escapes out to Vegas? I think I think you nailed it pretty good there because like you're saying, his goal when he was a kid was just to be the best golfer in the world. You know? And you're not thinking about 
brand management. You're not thinking about business deals. You're not. You're just thinking about being the best golfer in the world, winning the Masters. I mean, we played for the Masters a million times, and that's what it was all about. It was all pure golf, pure love of the game. And then the next thing you know, he he signs with with Nike. I remember the night he signed with Nike. I went over to the house, and Earl was there, and Cheetah was there, and Tiger was there, and this was before cell phones. Tiger literally had phones with, you know, the old phones, and he had one in each ear. And, you know, and there was like the house was full of suits of people I'd never seen before, and they didn't have a big house. And I'm like, oh, my God, what has he done? And, you know, another thing was is, is – because I was close to him, the, the Navy at the time would not let me, the public affairs officer wouldn't let me talk to the media, you know, and, and, and people were from all over the world wanted wanted to talk to me too. And I was like, I didn't really want to talk to anybody, but I mean, I was getting people knocking on my door three in the morning, you know, wanting to talk to me. Wow. And, and that was, and I was just on the sidelines and I can't imagine what he had to have been going through. And you know, it was spooking me from afar and, and uh, you know, what he had to go through. There's, you don't think of that when, when you're on your way. When you're winning your NCAAs and your junior worlds and becoming a world beater, then you sign with Nike, and then you start winning all these events. I, I don't think that that was in the game plan on how they were going to handle that kind of success. You know, it, it, it was just he wanted to be the best in the world growing up, and there's a lot more to it. I know you're – you were talking about Ricky Fowler earlier with Tom and, and, you know, maybe he's Ricky's gotten so large, you know, maybe he's kind of suffering from the same things. I can't speak for him, but I don't think these guys that get super popular, uh, you know, can handle these time constraints, these business deals, all these people that are making money off of them. And I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole different aspect of the, of what they have to do in life outside of the game. You know, they're, it's almost a vic, being a victim of your own success on, a, on some level. But going to Vegas, I'm sure, was a huge escape. If you saw the documentary, he got into diving because he could just get away. I mean, the pressure's on him. I couldn't imagine. Yeah, to that end, Joe, I mean, it, I mean you sort of now start to – put together everything that's been going on around him, you know, off the course and obviously the latest car accident and that sort of thing. To your point, if people are always after him for something, right? Whether it's a business deal, whether it's TMZ trying to chase him and anybody that's related, you know, around him and his circle around trying to figure out the latest bit of dirt and all of that sort of thing. I mean, we see the latest car accident and we, I, I don't know what happened. I don't know if you do or, or anybody else really knows the truth about what happened. But it seems like he's a guy that is self-medicating for pain, maybe self-medicating for the life that he is being forced to lead. And then I don't know if he fell asleep or what happened that led to the, the most recent accident. But it seems like a guy trying to escape all of that, but the world won't let him sort of live. I almost sort of think about it, Joe, in terms of, I remember Elvis Presley and I lived in Memphis for a lot of, a lot of my life and you know, what Elvis had to do to wake up in the morning in order to go to sleep at night and, and the life that, you know, he had to lead because of everything that was going on around him and the, and the entourage and all that sort of stuff. I, I, I tell you, to be honest with you, Joe, I walked away from that second part 
of the documentary feeling sorry for Tiger. Like, he's just a kid that wanted to play golf. But everything else has just sort of led him down a path, and it's sort of become a destructive path lately. But I think it's a place that he doesn't want to be, but he's sort of forced into it because of all this other stuff, the business, the this, the that, the other thing. He wants to spend time with his kids. He wants to you know, be in uh, you know, major championships, and he wants to win another Masters, and he wants to catch Jack and all of these sorts of things. It just seems like it all can't fit in a 24-hour day. And he's sort of trying to force it in there. I, I don't know. I, I, I walked away feeling sorry for him. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that Elvis one, is, do you remember when, when when you could see that happen to Elvis back in those days? I mean, we're kind of dating ourselves. Maybe your older audience can yeah. relate. But, yeah, it just it just spiraled out of control, which is it kind of mirrors that. I mean, hopefully from this accident and all that and getting older, the kids are growing up. And, you know, if, if for those of us that have kids, it totally changes your perspective in your life when your kids start uh, becoming young adults and you get more involved in, in, in life around that. I mean, I, I think that him playing with his kid in the tournament and taking more of a focus on, on his children's golf and all that is going to be nothing but good for him. You know, let me just settle down and be a dad for two seconds, you know, hopefully. As far as the accent, and I got to tell you, that happened right over here in Palisbury near where I am right now. And that particular spot that that he uh, got in that accident on, it, 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 in Palos Verdes, it's this huge, giant hill. You know, it's, it's square miles, but there's no freeways to it. So it's all these streets that are long and windy. And this particular spot is notorious because you come down these hills and then you go up a little and you go down a little. Where he was, you, you go by the time he got to where he was you're going really fast because it's very easy to go very fast on this particular street i've been on it many times and you come up this little rise and when you come up the little rise the road goes to the right so unless your eyes are right on that road when it goes to the right you're going to hit that curb and it, there's all kinds of marks from people smacking into that particular spot because you can't see it as you come over the rise and then you're right there and you got to go right so in his defense, I mean, that that is a pretty dangerous little spot that he got in that accident on. It was a perfect storm. I can't say if he was distracted driving or any of that, but it's definitely notorious for that particular type of accident in that particular spot because of that. Can't see what's coming your way coming over the ride. As we talk about him place. potentially being, you know, in this whirlwind of what, Tiger Woods Inc. has become. Do you think he can get out? Is is this too far gone? Is this runaway train gone too far and he can't get out? Or do you think he wants to get out? Do you think, you know, you talk about we've seen him play with Charlie and the, which is fantastic. And, you know, his daughter, Sam, and all of that sort of thing. And being a, a regular dad, has the train gotten too far out of control where he can't get out? Or do you do you think this now gives him the opportunity that he may be looking for to get out? Well, I think that he's too big. He means too much to golf. He means too much to too many people, too many companies. It's, it would be like if, you know, he, you know, Jack Nicholas isn't competitive, but he's still a huge voice in golf. And I think that's where Tiger's going to head. I, I don't see him ever, you know, getting out. He still has a lot of good that he can do in golf. Uh, there's so many areas of golf. I mean, his Tiger Woods Learning Centers are awesome. 
but there's a lot he could do. Any any if he pointed himself at any aspect of golf, junior golf, disabled golf, any type of faction of golf, he's still huge. He's gonna he's he's able to move the needle. He's kind of like Elon Musk in Bitcoin, you know. He's able to move the needle in anything, and I think to have that much say in and and power. I don't, I, yeah, I don't think he's going to get out of golf. I mean, maybe he'll be in it in a different aspect. You know, he's, he's doing courses now. He's kind of following Jack's path just a little bit. And, uh, you know, all those guys still love and respect Tiger. And, and I think, you know, he still has a ton to offer the golf world. It's not in playing and winning tournaments and, and many, many other layers of golf. But yeah, his train's left the stage. He's too big now. He's too big. He's not going anywhere, I don't think, anytime soon as far as golf's concerned. You know, now that his kids are growing up, maybe, you know, he can become a voice for junior golf and junior golf program. Who knows? Guy's the limit. He can do anything. Joe, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and follow you on online or on social media? Uh, I'm at Joe Groman Golf Foundation and Joe Groman and Joe the Pro. I post all my clinics. We're just at, you know, with the Wounded Warriors on Monday. Um, also, my website is JoeGromanGolfFoundation.org. And also, the, the HowToGolf.com. Sell my book there. All the proceeds from that book go to support all the programming we do with, uh, with you know, basically the Wounded Warriors. Uh, at-risk inner-city youth, um, disabled, we have huge programming with that. PGA Hope, we, we have a huge hope program. Um, but you can get, it's now an ebook too, by the way. It's called How to Golf Beginner's Guide. If anyone out there wants a perfect Christmas gift, Earl Woods wrote the forward to it. It's got me and Tiger on the cover. Um, that's at howtogolf.com, joegromangolffoundation.org, on Facebook at uh, Joe Groman. Uh, Joe Grom Golf Foundation and Joe the Pro. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's as technologically savvy as I'm able to pull off right now. <laughs> Great. Joe, I can't thank you enough for coming back and being a part of the show. Um, I hope we get the opportunity to catch up with you much sooner next time. You're fantastic, my friend. Oh, thanks, Christian. I felt so bad the Steelers didn't pull it off. What a start to the season. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for reminding me of that. Let's open that window again. I appreciate you. Um, I was thinking of you, brother. I was thinking of you. I, I thought this was their you. year. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, I think we're now show, we're Chris. a few years away. Thank you, Joe. Take <laughs> care, my friend. All the best in your family. Stay safe out there. Uh, thank you, Chris. Likewise, my friend. Bye-bye. See you, Joe. That's a great Joe Groman. G-R-O-H-M-A-N is the spelling of Joe's last name. Fantastic stuff. He's doing a lot of great things for Wounded Wars. You heard him mention that right at the end. Uh, a lot of great camps and uh, clinics uh, for our uh, for our heroes. So kudos to Joe for that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, we, when, uh, when the documentary came out, Joe reached out to me right away and said, hey, I need to set the record straight on some of this stuff. And uh, we tried to get him on uh, a little earlier in the year, but uh, some things came up. So uh, it was great to get him here. And like I say, if you haven't watched the HBO special, and you, there's a lot to it. But uh, the thing that I walked away, I walked away sad. I walked away from that sad for Tiger. 
because one, one, I think it was a hit job. And two, uh, some of the stuff that they showed, uh, for Vegas and, uh, in his life, I think, uh, it's, uh, it's been really hard on him. I think he's a guy that, uh, just wanted to win golf tournaments and just wanted to be the best golfer ever. And, uh, some things spiraled out of control and, um, he needed an escape at times. And, uh, that's what we saw in some of that. But uh, I think they painted a very dark picture that uh, is pretty unfair to Tiger. All right, before I get to my next guest, Mark Carnival, I want to give a shout-out to a few of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? Well, I'll tell you what, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented square toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour, an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent tests prove it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z.com and get Squares' 30-day money-back guarantee. Use promo code DISTANCE for $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. And, folks, I wouldn't tell you about it if I didn't experience it for myself. I've never felt more stable in my golf swing, which allows me to swing faster and launch it further. Squares, the distance golf shoe. I also want to give a shout-out to another new sponsor, Bionic Gloves. Do what you do better with Bionic Gloves. Whether you're looking to own the golf greens, improve your workouts, or get your hands dirty in the garden, Bionic Gloves has you covered. Designed with a hand specialist, Bionic Gloves feature patented innovations that help improve your grip. The strategically placed anatomical relief pads also prevent calluses and blisters, while the web and motion zones allow for greater dexterity and flexibility. Head over to BionicGloves.com to find the perfect glove to up your game. And I want to remind you about our friends over at Zexio. In 2001, Zexio Srixon began making clubs for men and women. And they've improved on those clubs every year since. Every part of Zexio clubs are made exclusively for Zexio. Everything is light and balanced. Swing weights are made to give us the highest smash factors. And the best part of getting fit for Zexio clubs is hitting it higher and straighter than ever before. Changing your game. Zexio clubs are a Golf Digest Hot List Gold winner for 2021. Congratulations to Zexio Ambassador MB Park for her five-stroke victory earlier this year at the Kia Classic. It was her 21st victory, and she did so using Zexio 11 Woods and 10 Irons. See how Zexio can help your game as well. Go online to ZexioUSA.com and pick which set is right for you. Okay, now next on the tee with me is Mark Carnival. Let me remind you about Mark's background. He's from Annapolis, Maryland, played his college golf at James Madison University, where he was a four-year letterman, and a two-time team MVP. While he was there, Mark won the 1979 Governor's Classic and the 1982 James Madison University Invitational. He graduated with his degree in marketing and minored in economics. In 1999, he was inducted into the JMU Athletics Hall of Fame. He turned pro in 1983. He won four times out on tour at the 1984 Virginia Open, the 1990 Utah Open, the 1992 Chattanooga Classic, and the 1997 Nike Inland Classic. He was named the PGA Tours Rookie of the Year in 1992. He finished tied for 25th at the 1998 U.S. Open at Olympic Club in San Francisco. 
You can now hear Mark on Sirius XM's PGA Tour Radio and PGA Tour Live. He's easily one of the all-time great golf analysts and on-course broadcasters, and I'm very honored to have him back with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming back on the show. Happy to be on here, Chris. I hope everything's well with you. Ah, fantastic. With me, Mark. And and, uh, I got to say, my friend, you make every golf tournament that you broadcast better. I'm not sure there is a better person to paint the picture that we all, when we're listening to you on the radio, we can't see it. But you paint the picture so well, uh, it really helps us uh, imagine what, uh, what we could be seeing. Kudos to you, my friend. You're outstanding. Well, thank you. It's, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I've had many conversations with with people over the years, and I've you know I've been doing PGA Tour radio since 2005. I, I did some TV prior to that. I've been doing PGA Tour live uh, for quite some time. But you know, it's I don't consider it work. Um, it's fun. Uh, I know that uh, you know we every week we're out there. People come up and and, and thank us, uh, not just myself, but everybody. What we do and uh, it's it's easy. I mean, I, when I say it's easy, uh, it's it's not something that I've had to work at in the sense of I just talk about what I see, what I how I relate that as a as a former player, and what I believe the listener wants to hear in order to be able to understand more what's going on. And as I said, it's, I, I I'm very fortunate to do what I do, and uh, you know, thankfully, I, you know. With, with people like you and other, you know, I, people understand that, you know, it's, it's, it certainly is a challenge for some people to do it, but uh, I, I don't know if I'm blessed or, or whatever you call it. Uh, but uh, I love doing it. Uh, and it's, uh, I feel fortunate to be able to still doing it. And I'm happy to be able to provide whatever golf uh, insights, knowledge uh, so that people can enjoy and understand uh, this game that I love so much that I owe so much to. So uh, thanks for your kind words. And, and Mark, you used the word easy. Was the transition from being a player to being a broadcaster easy? Did that just come naturally for you, or did you have to train some for that? Uh, I don't know. It just it seemed to come naturally. And one of the things, going back to my father, and uh, you know, one of the things he told me is that you know, son, when you 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 your profession gives you a lot, and playing professionally gave me a lot. And one of the things he sort of instilled in me and, and recommended and and he did himself was that you owe it to the game and those behind you to make the game better. Now, I had aspirations of working for the PGA Tour and trying to make the game better that way, and it didn't work out uh, for whatever reason. And uh, by, doing, by going into broadcasting, I figured, well, okay, I'm going to try to provide something for people and make the game better for other people that may not have access to going to tournaments or be on the road or, or however I'm able to do that. Uh, so when it's, when you have a passion for something, Chris, as you know, as you have a passion for, for, for your shows and, and all the different shows you do, it's not work. I mean, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's an obligation, although I look at it as an obligation to make the game better. But it, it seems to come naturally. It seems to be easy. And I, I got great, great stage advice from a number of different producers over the years that I've worked with. And they said, the best thing you can do is talk about what you see. You know, don't 
you don't have to go into a lot of stuff. And obviously there's a big difference between doing TV and radio where radio, you've got to talk all the time because you've got no pictures. When you're doing TV, you don't necessarily need to talk all the time because you've got the pictures. So, you know, you have to figure out what is it that I can offer that will help either the listener or viewer try to understand what's going on. And I'm not trying to say at their level, but in an easy way for them to understand and be able to picture it. And that's the philosophy that I've taken. And again, it's, I go out there and, you know, I'm not one who writes down a lot of notes and about this or, you know, this guy is strokes gain putting. He's second this week or he's 20th coming in because to me, while stats are important for some people, to me, what's important is what's happening right now. So what can I do to paint the picture for someone of what that player is dealing with right now? What, what, how is he approaching this shot? What does he do? So, uh, I probably, it's probably a simple approach to it, but I think it's a more understandable approach, uh, for listeners and viewers. So there's a couple of things that you just mentioned, Mark, that I want to get into. First of all, that. I mean, talk about your preparation <laughs> to cover a tournament because as you mentioned, you're not a stats guy, but you've got to prepare in order to be able to talk about and paint that picture about what the course is like, mm-hmm. what the conditions are like, and what we're, what we're listening to. Talk about what you do to, in order to prepare to broadcast a, a given tournament. So normally I will, on a, on a Thursday, I'll, or even on Wednesdays, we'll get an email from my producer and saying, okay, you're going to be, you know, if I'm doing radio, you're going to be covering this group. So I'll go and I'll, I'll look at their, their stats. I'll see what they're doing. You know, I, obviously when you're talking about the PGA Tour, one of the most important stats is where they are on the FedEx Cup points list. You know, how many terms they've won. What is their sort of recent performance been like? And I'll look at stuff like that and, and figure out a way at some point, maybe if it's appropriate, because I think the worst thing, in my opinion, uh, a broadcaster can do is try to force something. It, it's, it needs to be natural. It needs to come out naturally. And I'll give you a prime example that happened last week, and I got a, a, a big kudos and thumbs up from my producer, and we're talking about uh, – uh, we were out there. I was out following Deke Matsuyama, who currently was nine – is ninth on the FedEx Cup points list. I think he may have dropped a tenth or whatever. But as in years past, they had the Wyndham top ten. Uh, which is a, a reward for the top 10 players throughout the season. They get a bunch of extra money. Well, now it's the Comcast Business Tour Top 10. And I sort of transitioned from saying that, you know, a decade, which is basically a mirror image of the top 10 in the FedEx Cup points, points list, not basically it is a mirror image. But I kind of transitioned that, you know, he's ninth in FedEx Cup points and currently ninth in the business Comcast Business Tour Top 10. And, it's just, I think it, it, what it does, as I said, it, it wasn't forced. It just, it came out naturally because if, if you're talking about a player and say he's, you know, currently leading a golf tournament and say it's on a, a Friday or Saturday, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, to me, if I'm a listener, I'm listening. If I said, oh, by the way, he's kind of strokes gained tee to green uh, for, for coming into the week. I'm, I'm not so sure people, the average listener or viewer may understand that. Now, if I say he leads the tournament in greens and regulation, he learned, leans the, the week in fairways hit, I think that's something more they can relate to. I think the strokes game thing is 
I don't know. I, I still haven't figured that out. But I think to me the basic <laughs> stats. He's you know he's second in birdie average for the year. He's he's averaging four point six birdies per round. I mean I think a guy that wow man he's almost you know he's making five birdies around. I wonder he's he's a good player. I wonder he's you know he's he's up there this this year or this week. So it's it's deciphering and and figuring out what I think which stats would apply more to the players that I'm talking about and covering. So not to get inundated with, with other stats. And, and to kind of touch on that a little bit, I know that stats mean something to a lot of people. I mean, we have guys that are out here now that they get paid to tell players what their stats are. Well, having played 12 years, I know the areas that I'm insufficient at. <laughs> you know, I knew when I was playing, if, if I was not very good from 80 to 100 yards, I, I knew that, you know, Again, it, but everybody's different. So I'm not, I don't discount what they provide to players. But to me, whatever has happened up to this point to a tournament, to me, is irrelevant. What only thing matters now is how that player is performing this week, this round, this hole. And as I said, I think sometimes broadcasters can get inundated with stats because I don't think the average person can understand them. So <laughs> that, that's my philosophy for that if that answers your question. <laughs> it does. But but let's let's expand on that just a little bit. Right? Because okay. depending on the course and the conditions and all of those sorts of things, it's gonna play in into how well you perform that week. So if yeah. someone were to have come to you, Mark, and I know you said, hey look, I know where I'm deficient in my game. But if someone had come to you and said, you know what, Mark? This past week, you were 137th in strokes, strokes gained putting, and you were 54th in, you know, whatever, right? And in some one of yeah. the other categories, strokes gained whatever, right? Is that going to make you change? Because the week before that, the conditions might have been completely different, and you might have been eighth in whatever it was in putting yeah. and strokes gained, you know, around the green and all that sort of stuff. Are, are you going to be, you know, changing something based on your performance of, what happened just this past week, or are you looking at it for the year? I mean, how how do you digest all of that, that all those stats and make any sort yeah. of change you might need to make? I would look at it if it was a pattern. So if it, you know, because you have that way, I mean, every athlete, every person, whether it's in sports or business, can have a bad week. I mean, it just sometimes things don't go your way. Sometimes uh, other factors are part of it. And I think you have to be, mentally strong enough to be able to decipher that. I mean, to think a player is going to go out and perform at its highest week in and week out, round after round, you know, month after month is, you know, someone's going to be very delusional. Um, as you, you know, I would always go back and look at my season and I may, I might look at it in chunks, maybe the, uh, a, an eight tournament segment or a five tournament segment. I'd look at, okay, where am I, you know, where am I struggling at? And then, and I know it because I was there. I experienced it. I, I don't. I didn't need someone to tell me. Well, you know, you only made two putts from eight to ten feet in uh, eight rounds of golf. Well, I was there. I I, I know that. Um, it, it, so it's it, it's interesting. I, I understand it. I mean, it's we live in a total different world. Uh, that when I first, even when I first started playing, I mean, uh, it's just. It's 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 sad. Everybody thrives on that information, and while I think again, it's like it's like caddies. 
you know, certain caddies, certain players need caddies to do certain things. Other players need them to do something else. And you have to find the right balance for you. You have to find what you need to perform. And if, if there's someone who relies on someone else telling you, you know, you suck at this or, you know, your performance <laughs> here is really bad, then I'm like, okay, I'll bet. I mean, I'll, I'll revert to another thing my father told me. And, you know, this goes to a lot of different areas. But he said, son, no one knows your golf game better than you. You know, no one can hey. sit there and tell you how you're playing better than you understand how you're playing. So while it's helpful to go to a teacher to have someone help you, he says, at the end of the day, you know when you're performing well. You know when you're at your best. The key is you need to find how to be at that best more often than not. So to your point about that guys being out there and, and feeding this information to players, is it too much? You know, as a player now, you've got your swing coach, you've got your putting coach, you've got your, you know, your mental coach, you got, you got a stats guy, you got your agent. I mean, there's like this massive amount of people always in your ear. We made the yeah. game too difficult with all of that? Well, I think it's, and I, and I go back to what I said, I think the game has changed a little bit. Not that it wasn't a business when I played or when Arnold and Jack played or when Walter Hagen and Ben Hogan played. Uh, and before that, I mean, obviously you could look at it in so many different different ways. But I I think what what I see on a weekly basis, and and maybe it's the culture we live in now. You know, it's you know obviously I'm you know I'm a lot older than you know I could be a lot of these players' father. So you know I have a different perspective on it. Uh, I, I I've had discussions with uh, numerous. You know, respected people in this game that have worked with many players, Dave Stockton Sr., uh, Jim McClain, other people. There needs, it seems to me, for the most part, one, very few players own their golf swing. And when I say that, one, they don't know how to fix it. They don't know how to adjust to it unless it's perfect. And two, absolutely they get overloaded. Uh, there's like this in-depth process, and I don't know if it's sports psychologists, I don't know if it's coaches, I don't know if it's teachers or whatever it is, there seems to be this sense of doubt. Um, you know, I mean, I would know when I would hit a golf shot, and again, people could say, well, Mark, you only won one time on tour, and you won this or that. I mean, whatever, you could put up, you, yeah, you know, your career was a lot better than mine. I, 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 will, I will acquiesce to that. But when I would walk off a tee and I knew where my tee shot was, I knew halfway to the to my golf ball because I knew where the pin was. I knew where the flagstick was. I knew what trouble was around me. I pretty much knew what I was going to do. I wanted a yardage, and the yardage at the same time to me was just something to go by. I mean, nowadays with track man and, and flight sky, these guys, I mean, they know exactly how far they, if they take the club back this far, they know you know that that was that was not me. That that you know technology passed me by. Uh, even when technology got better, it didn't necessarily help my golf game. But I think there's way too much thought it now. I think because players are afraid of making mistakes. You know, one thing I've always believed, and this goes to players, you know, trying to win golf tournaments. 
whether it's a guy who's a multiple winner or whether it's a player, you know, K.H. Lee last week trying to win his first PGA Tour event. I, I believe this, and I I will, you know, will go to my grave or I'll, I'll say it till the last time I can say something. You have to be willing to risk losing in order to win. If you if you don't try to embrace that and go for it, your percentage of winning, I think, are a lot less than, oh, what am I going to do if I, you know, I've got water left here. If I miss the shot, you got to go for it. You know, and I don't mean that in the sense that you make a, a stupid play or you don't make a smart decision, but you've got to be willing to risk that. And I think I've, I've seen over the years, and I, I'm not going to say names or whatever, but I, you can see, you can sense when a player does that mean he's nervous? Sure, he should be nervous. But to me, nerves is a is a common factor to me. But again, I think you need to risk losing in order to win in anything. And then people are trying to be successful in business. I mean, if you sat there, Chris, when you started doing your shows, you said, "Boy, you know, what am I going to do if this doesn't work out?" And I, you know, I'm, you know, if you didn't take that chance, you would never have gotten to where you're at. So I, I think that yep. philosophy applies to anything. You've got to risk losing in order to win. So let's expand upon that because it's interesting that you say that, Mark. And I've had Hal Sutton on the show a number of times now. And Hal came on mm-hmm. right after the Players Championship. And one of the things, and Hal said the exact same thing that you said in in relation to, you know, what we saw, you know, with Lee Westwood. Right? He's like, look, Lee sure. Westwood needed to win that tournament. He needed to go for the pin on 17 in order to have a chance to win that golf tournament. And he put it in the middle of the green and then, you know, two or three putted. I can't remember if he parred or or ended up bogey in that hole. But he didn't go for it. He had to go for the flag, and he didn't. And that's the difference between winning and losing. And that's the difference between winning a major championship, which has eluded Lee Westwood, Versus him having an opportunity to win it. We know the players isn't a major, but it's close. But the the it's sort of the same theme of what you're saying. Players have got to be able to say, look, if I dump this ball in the water on 17, I'm going to lose. But if I don't go for this pin, I'm not going to win. And am I going to be willing sure. to settle for second or third place money? And, uh, well, I had a nice tournament versus holding the cup at the end of this championship. I think that's the same thing you're saying. He said it with with yeah. respect to Westwood. Yeah, and I and I would I absolutely respect Lee. He's a great player. I mean, I, you know, but I, again, there's 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 a difference. There's a fine line between that, and it doesn't disparage someone's ability. Uh, I think it's something that, again, you know, if someone told me, "What's the worst thing that's going to happen? You don't win. What's the best thing that's going to happen? Is you win." So right. you've got you've got you got to make that choice, and you know maybe Lee was trying to hit it close and he pulled. Who knows? You, you know you 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 don't know. You know people think you know they see a shot and it's well offline, so they may assume. And I'm not saying anything that I'm not saying yes or no about what Lee did, but you have to believe you would have to be a little more aggressive. And you don't pull off the shot. Okay, what's Lee, Lee Westwood is going to be fine the rest of his life. Right. He's won enough golf tournaments. He's won enough money. But 
that elusive, somewhat big tournament has eluded him. You know, uh, again, it, it's not a, it's not a knock on players personally, but I'm just, my observation is I can see it. I see it happen out there a lot. Well, Mark, I, I know you're you're out of Kiowa, so we got to get uh, a couple of insights from you. Um, golf course is going to play potentially the longest in major championship history, almost 7,900 yards. I learned, uh, I was talking with Tom Patry at the top of the show as I was doing some research that, that Kiowa has the, uh, the most seaside holes of any course in the country. So we know mm-hmm. that there's going to be wind and it's going to be a huge factor in the course. Could have, uh, you know, I, potentially play over 8,000 yards and it's got a course rating of 77.2. So what are you expecting <laughs> to see this weekend? I'm not sure what the course rating means, but that's, that's another stat thing. <laughs> uh, you know, I was out there today and I was walking with a couple of different players and talking to them. Uh, the golf course is in great shape. Uh, the winds are not supposed to be uh, ridiculous. Uh, you may get some winds in the, uh, in the high teens, but you know, we're not supposed to get, at least at the moment, I, I haven't seen any forecast for a lot of gusty winds. It's going to be strong. It's going to be a challenge. And, you know, it's particularly a challenge if you happen to start one of the days on 10 because you go out 10, 11, 12, 13, then you turn around and 14 basically through five is back into the wind. So you've got a, a pretty tough stretch there. Uh, but, I, you know, I, to be quite honest with you, I was here nine years ago when they had this had the PGA Championship here in, in 2012. I had played it probably five years prior to that, Chris. I got out to the golf course. I had a hard time remembering the golf course, and I don't know why. I mean, I, I that it's strange. Uh, there's a, you know people have talked about it. It's the hardest golf course in the U.S. You know, we had the Ryder Cup, the War on the Shore, but I had a hard time remembering the holes. And I mean, a lot of them look very similar. Now again, it's been a while since I played it, and when you're when you're broadcasting and walking along, you know, you'll see the hole. But, again, when you're playing it, it, it presents a different uh, challenge for you. Uh, but it, it, everybody I've talked to said it's going to be tough. Um, you know, I, again, I think a lot of could depend on your the wave of the tee times. Uh, if you get a lucky draw, if you get maybe a little unlucky, uh, it could be a factor. I think, again, it's going to be one where I believe it's a player that probably controls his golf ball the best. Maybe not. You're probably not going to – it's not going to be a tournament where you, you see a guy just go crazy on the greens and, and win. Now, maybe if, he, if he's able to do all the other things, sure, he might run away with it, uh, like we saw Rory do in 2012. But I think it's – while putting is going to be very important, I think the other aspects of the game are going to probably play a bigger factor this week than they might in some other major championships. Mark, just a couple more before I let you go. And when you when you look back to the to the mid nineties forward, we've seen some players emerge at a PGA championship. Guys like mm-hmm. Y.E. Yang and Bob May, Rich Beam, good friend of ours, Sean McKeel. Um, those kind of guys have sort of come up and, and, and won a major championship at a PGA. Do you think that that's that's somebody, you know, that kind of that caliber of player, we might see somebody emerge as a champion, or do you think because of the conditions, because of this course, because of the length, 
it's going to be someone that we're more used to, a Rory could repeat uh, at that site, or a Dustin Johnson, somebody like that. I tend to lean more that way, Chris, but I would never sit here and say it's not possible. I think one of the other factors, and obviously we've lived in these last 14 months of pretty strange times, and, you know, we had uh, two major, we had three major championships uh, last year that had very few spectators. Uh, I think last year's PJ championship was very unique. Um, again, I, I'm not taking anything away from Colin Morikawa, uh, but I, I think if there were normal fans out there, I'm not so sure he pulls off that tee shot on 16. Uh, I'm not saying he wouldn't go on to win again. I, I'm not taking anything away from Colin Morikawa because I think he's a spectacular player. And he's he's a nice young man, and he seems very well, you know, put together with all aspects, both his personality, uh, his appreciation for the game and everything. So I, I don't want your listeners to mistake that. But it's going to be the first time where we're going to have a larger number of fans at a major championship. And I think players that have been there before, uh, and particularly a Roy McIlroy, a, a Justin Thomas, a, a Dustin Johnson, that I think without question have uh, fed off, off, off the fans and the energy that they created uh, is, is going to give them a boost uh, again. But I, but would it shock me? No, it wouldn't shock me if, you know, like last week, a guy like Cage Lee uh, were to win. Um, but it's tough. It's a tough challenge. Uh, things are going to have to go that player's way. Uh, but I would tend to lean towards more of an experienced player winning this week for, for a number of reasons. Mark, you did a, a great job. I was listening to your interview, speaking of K.H. Lee, following the golf tournament this past weekend, and obviously his first win and that sort of thing. Um, but he's a guy who switched putters. And mm. when, I, when, I, when, I, when I heard you talking to him about switching his putter, I, I started thinking about you know guys that have done that. DJ has done it. We saw Tiger do it a couple of years ago. Jack Nichols, obviously, in 86 at the Masters, changed putters. And, and the immediate success that comes from that. Um, is that a confidence building thing? What, why do you think that, uh, we've seen some of the, some of the players go out and win a golf tournament right after switching putters? Well, I think obviously they have struggled with it in order, you know, for, for even thinking about switching, something is not right. He does not make putts. The feel of it is not there. And I think you players, you know, will pick up a putter. I mean, I've done it, uh, in, when I was playing where you pick up one and it just, wow, this thing feels great. And, you see, whatever for whatever reason, you see the line. Uh, you just feel the ball, you know, working the direction you're 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 trying to feed it to the hole. Uh, there's a lot of factors because it's you know all these guys are so talented, Chris. Um, and it could just be something that's minor. Uh, you know, I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe somehow their putter got dinged a little bit and the the loft got off a little bit and it just doesn't look right. And you know, you you find something that you feel and I always knew I could I could hit a couple putts, you know, when you're playing there and there's a number of uh, manufacturers that have bags around the, the, the putting green that the players use to, to practice on. And you'll sit there and you'll, you'll pull out a putter and you have a couple putts like, wow. And next thing you know, you know, it's in your bag and you're using it and, and you're making putts. And uh, it's a, that's putting to me is the most unique sort of, uh, I don't want to say aspect, but 
it's the neat, the most unique part of your game because every other part of your game needs to be somewhat structured in the sense that the only way you're going to be able to control your golf ball is if you control the club face. I don't care how you get it back behind your body or how you finish it coming through, but unless that club face is square, you're not going to be able to be successful. The putter, it's it just there's so many other factors that could be in there. I mean, again, it could be a it could be a half inch flatter. It could be just something about it that doesn't have to be as normal as the rest of your game has to be. Um, and I think that's why you see a lot of players change it. Uh, you know, you see players go left hand low, or they go for the saw grip, or however. It's there's there's more feel in putting. I think than any other aspect of a player's golf game, and I think that's why you can see players making a change, being successful. Mark, before I let you go, and I know you got off Twitter recently, is there a, <laughs> a way for our listeners to stay up to date with all the things you're doing and follow you, whether it's online or somewhere on social media? Uh, probably not, unless you give them my phone number, Chris. But um. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, obviously in this strange time that we're living at, I just, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I've just gotten, I've just, I, I'll, I'll do quite a few events, you know, the remainder of the year for PJ Tour Radio. This week I'm, I'm working for, uh, Sirius XM, you know, for PGA Championship Radio. I'll do probably four or five more, uh, PJ Tour Lives this year. Uh, I wish I could put that out there. Um, but I just, I couldn't take it anymore from all the content that was out there. And I realized that maybe that's a selfish thing on my part because I know, I understand people want to know, uh, but, um, I'm getting too old for that, Chris. <laughs> I understand my friend. No worries. Mark, it's always <laughs> a huge thrill getting to spend time with you. Uh, you're fantastic. And, uh, as an interviewee. And uh, the, the job you do for all of us painting the pictures of the PGA Tour. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule during PGA Championship Week to come back and be a part of the show, my friend. I hope we get the privilege of catching up again soon. Well, I'm sure you will, Chris. I appreciate you reaching out to me. appreciate everything you do, not only for golf, but everything else. Uh, you, you certainly keep uh, fans informed uh, in many ways, and uh, you know, we appreciate you as well. Oh, thank you very much for that, Mark. Stay safe, my friend. All the best to you and your family. We'll look forward to catching up soon. Thank you. Take care. See you, Mark. That's the great Mark Carnival. And, folks, um, seriously, nobody does it better than Mark does. He's uh, a, a wonderful uh, on-course broadcaster. He paints the pictures better than anybody and uh, takes us sort of inside uh, you know, the, the PGA Tour player's mind, which is what we just heard here during this conversation. Uh, and on top of that, he's just a great human being. So I thank Mark very much. I, I know he's got a huge schedule this week being a part of PGA Championship Radio and uh, over on SiriusXM. And to get uh, 30 minutes with him is uh, is a huge honor. All right. It is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Team. My sincere thanks again to Tom Patrick, Joe Groman, and Mark Carnival for joining me. Please check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. And folks, next week scheduled to join me are a quartet of great friends, starting with Golf Channel Academy lead instructor Keith Jarvis. Really looking forward to having Keith back as part of the show. 
Dr. Bob Jones IV, Bobby Jones' grandson. He'll be back with us. Really looking forward to catching up with Doc. The best author on the planet, in my view, and former Golf Channel producer Keith Hirschland is going to be here. And another one of the top instructors in the game and a birthday boy today, Brian Jacobs, will join me. Happy birthday, Brian. Looking forward to catching up with you next week. So it's going to be a great show, folks. I hope you'll come back and be a part of it with me. Folks, you can stream this show as a podcast on a number of great podcasting sites and apps like Podcast.co, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Audioboom, Player.fm, Odyssey. Folks, if you've got a favorite podcasting site or app, we're probably on it. Just type next on the T in the search bar. I'm sure you'll find us there. And if you enjoy the show, please do me a favor and go online to podcastmagazine.com and vote for the show and their Hot 50 list. When you're on the site, just click on Hot 50 at the top. You're going to get a drop-down list that includes Hot 50 voting. Click on that, and then just type in the name of the show next on the T, and then my name, Chris Mascaro, in the host section. I really appreciate your support. Folks, thanks again for choosing to listen to the show tonight. I really appreciate the fact that you continue to make Next on the T a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. A lifetime of hard work, children laughing in the kitchen, family photos on a restaurant wall, a legacy that lives on. It all comes from the power of a conversation, like the one Tommy Hall had with First Horizon Bank about taking over his father's Charleston-based restaurant business. Now the table is set for a whole new generation. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Tommy. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Hi, I'm Mark Beckham with Atlanta Ramjack. We specialize in only foundation repair. What is foundation repair? Foundations sink or settle. These issues need to be addressed. It only becomes more costly the longer you put it off. What is the biggest cause of foundation problem? Either poor construction, inferior site preparation, or weather. Drought causes cracks in your foundations. If you see any signs of foundation issues, please contact us at atlantaramjack.com.